Australian Republican debates centre around whether we, broadly, remain part of United Kingdom culture and systems. Of course, that's the modern manifestation of the even more encompassing Britain, once Great Britain. What if there were no Britain at all? Contemporary Britain is in post-Brexit turmoil. The Scottish independent move, independence movement's been gathering strength over the last decade. Wales and Northern Ireland have also been slowly edging towards independence. Stuart Ward, a professor of British imperial history, is confident the world is witnessing the end of Britain and Britishness. And he's assembled all this in his latest work, Untied Kingdom, a global history of the end of Britain. Welcome to the program, Stuart. Thanks, Geraldine. This week, we've seen the resignation, the quite shock resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as Scotland's first minister, which some in the English press have jumped on as evidence that Scottish independence as an idea is dead and buried. Now, is that your view? Look, it's obviously a major setback. Sturgeon has dominated the political landscape for the last eight years. She's been a hugely popular figure in Scotland. She's been someone who's brought a lot of confidence to the SNP's political platform. And so much of the sort of the high polling that's been registered in the last few years for independence, upwards of 50% of Scots are prepared to consider uh, independence. That can be put down to, to her influence and her her um, uh, ability as a politician. That said, uh, in the in the heat of the moment, a lot of op-eds this week have declared independence, you know, it's all over and done with. But I think this is an issue that's been unravelling for the last 50 or 60 years. It, never, it was never about one particular figure. We thought the same about Alex Salmond when he was head of SNP, that it was all about him. He passed the baton to Sturgeon. And although they're obviously in a difficult uh, it's a difficult moment for the SNP. I don't think over the longer term this is going to be seen as much other than a, a, a blip on the screen uh, in this longer term trajectory. But as part of your general thesis, which is that there's a sort of diminishing returns of being British, um, which I want you to develop, but you do say Australians haven't really woken up to the decrepit state of the United Kingdom. Uh, and now you live there, do you? Well, actually, I, I live in Denmark, but I have uh, yeah, lived on and off in the UK over the last 20 years, So, but uh, but m- most recently in, in Copenhagen. And what's striking you? What is it that you, that you think is really fulfils your suggestion that it's all part of this sort of long withdrawing roar? Well, what uh, viewing it from the perspective I have here in Denmark, you're very much caught up in the whole uh, the, the aftermath of Brexit and, and and certainly the fallout of Brexit. And what we've seen uh, in the UK is the way in which the Brexit uh, vote and how that split the vote has really accentuated the divisions within the United Kingdom. That is to say, we saw how in Scotland you had upwards of 64% of the, of the population wanted to remain. Northern Ireland was also in favour of remaining. So those kinds of fissures that have been opening up these these cracks that have been widening for the last several decades these are uh, have really been heavily accentuated by uh, by the brexit uh, fallout as it were that's not what it's all about fundamentally fundamentally this is about a problem that does go back to the 1960s we have to look at when these separatist political parties first got a foot uh, foothold in Westminster, how cultural nationalism, which has been around in Scotland and Wales and elsewhere for for generations, how did this did this become politicised? And this becomes politicised in the context of a wider story of the breakup of the British Empire, which had terminal effects on the the sensibility of being British. And this is the argument fundamentally of the book. Yes, the demise of Britishness as a global civic idea and its impact on communities across the globe. Now, I just want to argue with you a little bit because you do say there's a malleability 
uh, ha- there was a malleability underneath all of that idea of Britishness, if I'm reading you correctly, that you do right. see as a strength. And I-, I wonder why you, well, has that gone? Yeah, well, Britishness was always rooted in this elasticity and multiple multiple geography. So if you compare it to Englishness, Scottishness or Welshness, it wasn't baked hard in the emotional heartland and packed off for export. Rather, it was itself a kind of an offshore formation. It was actually those people who went out and needed new ideas, new, new civic ideas that could travel uh, vast distances. But what happens after the, you know, after the Second World War and into the 60s and 70s, the capacity for all these different variations on the theme to coexist without sort of rubbing up against each other the wrong way, that starts to come apart uh, for two reasons. Uh, One is the simple fact that Britain can no longer perform this role of an imperial hub. It can't be the source of of finance. It can't be the source of migrants. It can't be the source of defence for all these different parts of the world. And so you get conflicts of interest uh, that emerge. And then the second thing is that you get a new culture of globalisation where all these different pockets of British identity around around the world, they can actually come into virtual proximity with, with each other. And so you get this process where people start to encounter that their Britishness is not shared. It is not a universal concept. It is not something necessarily that uh, that travels. And this culture of misrecognition is part of what leads the idea of a universal Britishness to start to come unstuck at the seams. So that's why I'm saying that elasticity, which was once a strength in the modern era when you no longer have the, 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 the capacity of Britain to provide the role of an imperial hub and the fact that they come into too, in, into frequent proximity with each other. This makes the idea lose its credibility. Yes, you, interesting. You say there's a real risk now of losing the connection between myth and material realities, which could corrode confidence in the entire political system if left if left unchecked. Now, again, obviously, this is what's really intriguing you: the idea of. Uh, recognising possibly with a shock that what you thought was shared, you know, around the world as a great sort of multinational idea is actually threadbare. Um, where, where do you see that happening? Where can you see that playing out? Well, I, I see the possibility of that playing out. For example, uh, it, it, you know, all political systems need to exist also in the realm of myth. There needs to be a sense that their authority uh, taps deeper uh, sources of of of, uh, of of human belief. Why do we believe in our political systems? It's not just a common sense thing. It's not just about something being broke or otherwise and whether it should be fixed. There needs to be, in times of crisis, our institutions need to draw on a deeper emotional and moral authority. In Australia, the British crown, historically, was that mythical source. And back in the days when you had Queen Elizabeth and her predecessors, that was also part of that moral authority. So in a world where the very source of that moral authority no longer, conceivably no longer exists, you know, conceivably where you have Northern Ireland you know, being merged mm. into the Republic or Scotland becoming uh, independent, where does that leave uh, the, the moral authority of, a, of the Australian constitution? And I think that that's where hard thinking needs to be done, that it's much more than just we need an Australian as a head of state or these polarities where we say, oh, well, if it's not Britain, what's the opposite of Britain? You know, if it's not monarchy, it should be a republic. Harder thinking needs to be done about how the world looks and how Australia looks in a world where that polar star of Britain that's always been there, even even when it's not been self-conscious, even when you're not thinking about it when you're brushing your teeth and looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning. It's, it's there and it's important and particularly important in times of crisis. So that's the kind of scenario uh, that I think that, that needs to be 
thought about a, a bit harder for so, those who are advocating for alternative constitutional arrangements in Australia. What does bind Australia, in other words, in its own homegrown or where it draws its own myth from, you're suggesting? Exactly. Mm. Uh, look, I'm again going to argue with you because I think that you underestimate maybe the extraordinary soft power uh, that comes from British inheritances. And I just was listing them last night. You know, Agatha Christie, for instance. I mean, don't laugh, but I think that's really quite... Because there's all sorts of codes and etiquette in there. Uh, rammed home again and again and again. There's um, Teletubbies, you know, getting the kids at Charlie and Lola. Gorgeous sort of thing for young children. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, but it's just wonderful values. Communities clapping at the end of every day during COVID for the NHS didn't happen anywhere, or it started there, didn't happen, start anywhere else in the world. These are very powerful things, aren't they, which don't necessarily spring spontaneously from the creative parts of the community or the community elsewhere. Isn't, doesn't that matter still? Well, of course it does, but so does many other sources of you know, uh, the, the rich variety of sort of you know, cultural material that makes up modern Australia. All of those things matter. The dis- difference is really that you know back back in the you know the period of the fifties, the sixties, and before. There was this this self-conscious veneration of the British connection. There was this idea, you know, in citizenship ceremonies that people would say, I love my country, the British Empire. I, 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 mm. You know, your citizenship and your subject, subjecthood was self-consciously British. When Britain first joined the common market, you know, the, the media in Australia was obsessed with this thing and reporting on it as though it was a matter of life and death for Australia. And that's all gone. I mean, the whole way that the Brexit debate has been uh, covered in Australia has been much more detached, much more about, you know, uh, uh, the problems of a country over there, not to mention all the problems you've had in Britain since, uh, you know, the Liz Truss effect and so forth. So I guess what I'm saying is that there will always be those legacies because all countries are the product of their history. So you will always have a whole range of different cultural artefacts will make up that whole. But when you can no longer articulate the myth in the way that it once was, when you can no longer uh, uh, talk about Britishness as a modern, credible uh, and viable civic idea, you need something else. And I think that that work, certainly at the level of enshrining the constitution with a deeper emotional and moral authority, I think that work remains to be done. And the self-correction capacities of the British, of the Brits, how do you judge them? If you extend your malleability, and I hear what you say, uh, I mean, if you look at, listen to their podcasts and you look at their own material, they're, they're critiquing this themselves constantly. You don't think that that might produce a result? You can hear the Anglophile in me, I know. <laughs> well, well, I think that's that's absolutely right. But you don't need to be an Anglophile to say that, you know, anything can happen, obviously. So, so the book that I've written is not a work of prophecy. It's not sort of a future prediction. It's looking at a longer trajectory over 50 or 60 years and, and and saying that the status quo is not tenable. So you cannot continue with a situation like you have in Scotland, where half the population routinely and regularly when asked says, we'd actually rather be part of a different country. Uh, you know, no kind of entity can sustain those kinds of numbers. Uh, but that's not to say that Scottish independence is the logical outcome, because the mechanisms are very, very difficult to foresee. So what could happen is that you could, you know, I think Westminster, the UK Parliament, if it really wants to remain sovereign, 
it has to do the work to try and reconstitute the UK to accommodate these sentiments and to, mm. to accommodate these tensions. So something like a federal UK system or some kind of a devolved or enhanced devolution. Okay. The problem with that is, is that every time they have devolved the UK, they've only made the matter worse. We've got to go, Stuart. Thank you very much yes, indeed for provoking imagine. me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My pleasure. Stuart Ward, Untied Kingdom. And it is a Cambridge University Press publication out next week. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.